And we're in John chapter 18. I'm going to uh, read the text again, John chapter 18, the first 27 verses. If you would like to honor the Word of God by standing again, I would appreciate that. John 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, which uh, is a reference to the last uh, three chapters, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers of the chief priests and, of the, and, from, and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing that all would happen to uh, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. I am he. Amy. Me. It's just I am. Judas. Uh, and they drew back. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. I, I missed. Judas, was be, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he said, ask them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed, and so did another disciple. Since the disciple was known to the high priest, he entered into, uh, he entered, excuse me, with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door, so the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servant Servants and officers had made a charcoal fire. 
because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about the, his disciples and his teachings. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck him. Jesus with his, his hand and saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, What if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Peter, Simon Peter, was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter denied again, and once, and at once the rooster crowed. Thank you. You may be seated. Last week we introduced this portion of uh, the life of Christ, which uh, John here tells us is the hour toward which his entire life was directed. Oftentimes in the Gospel of John, Jesus was confronted with the uh, chief priests and the officers who criticized him, and but he escaped from them because his hour had not yet come. But now it is it has come, and and. Uh, we read there in John chapter 12, verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if these words were just read without anything else, one would conclude from that statement that a great honor was about to be bestowed on the Savior. But Jesus continued. And with these words, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, so where's the glory there? It dies. It remains alone. Unless it falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. In other words, Jesus says something has to happen to this grain of wheat if it is to have any glory. What is that it has to be done? It has to fall into the ground and die. And if it does, if it dies, Jesus said, it bears much fruit. There's the glory. That's verse 24. So here's a pattern. This is a pattern that we see. And it is repeated over and over and over again that the glory and the fruit and the blessing often comes only after a period of darkness and death. 
and difficulty. So we read there with uh, the Luke in uh, chapter 22 and verse 53 of Luke. It says, Jesus said, this is your. When he was arrested, he said, he told them, this is your, referring to the rebellious nation and the officers, Judas and those who came to arrest him. He said, this is your hour and the power of darkness. So Jesus here was advancing the spiritual battle that was begun clear back in the Garden of Eden with the fall of Adam. God's plan of the ages was to redeem and to restore his original purpose for Adam and Adam's offspring to be his agent of dominion over the works of his hands. So to accomplish this restoration, the serpent who tempted Eve and caused them to sin had to be destroyed. He was had to be crushed. And all his power and influence destroyed. He has a lot of power and influence today. But it has to be destroyed. And this, this intention was declared there in Genesis 3.15. You're all familiar with that. I will put enmity between thee and the woman or you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So here's a fight, a battle, in which the serpent's head is crushed, but also the son's heel is crushed. Better to have a crushed heel than a crushed head. But this is what happened on the cross. In order for Jesus to be crucified, they had to crush his heel. But in the crushing of his heel, Jesus won the victory over the serpent and crushed his head. This happened at the cross. And this is where we're headed. Here was Satan's hour of power and darkness which fell upon the Savior. But because of power of God and the Savior's obedience. It's going to break into the glorious dawn and day of rejoicing. Nevertheless, as Jesus declared, that hour was as a grain of wheat planted in the ground. It died. But its dying produced a harvest of grain. Jesus' death was necessary and would lead to a glorious end as he obediently surrendered to the will of God. By his obedience, we read there in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. The whole world of rulers and authorities really were defeated at the cross. But they haven't given up. Jesus defeated them there and triumphing over them. According then to uh, in him. And we do. We triumph over them in him according to Colossians 2.15. His obedience was rewarded by resurrection. 
Three days after his death, God raised him from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 says, Death was swallowed up in victory. But there's still death. And will be death until Jesus comes back again. And the last enemy to be destroyed, his death will be no more. No, And then also, as we noted last week, we ourselves, like Jesus, are in a spiritual battle that's being played out in this gospel age. Jesus understood the plan of God in the struggle and acted with resolve and determination. And I'm saying that's what we have to do as well. When it looks the darkest, we stay by the stuff and be faithful and trust our living God. Jesus prayed, not as I will, but as you will. And so must we. The evil suffered by Christ and his people demonstrate the pattern of the victory. So in Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. That's the New King James. Paul explained then in verse 29 of Romans 8 that suffering in this conflict resulted in the believers being conformed to the image of Christ so that as Jesus was glorified so would his followers there's the blessing we wonder why what, what good is coming to me in God's working all things out why do I suffer why do I go through these dark periods like Jesus the corn of wheat must die in order for it to bear fruit. What is the fruit that we bear? The image of our Savior. We shall be transformed into his very likeness. And that's what we are guaranteed in the resurrection. For in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, we'll be changed. Changed into his very likeness. So then, as we consider this last section of John's Gospel, the 18th through the 22nd chapters, we're going to focus here on the recounting of, of Jesus' betrayal here at the hands of Judas, the plotting of the hateful and wicked Jews, the cowardice of the, his disciples, and then the political expediency of the Roman procurator Pilate. All which result here in the horrible injustice to the innocent Lamb of God. So, I want you to note first of all this morning, the rejection of the King. John's Gospel is unique in its attention to the universal aspect of the good news. Something the Jewish leaders of his day resisted violently. I'll, I'll show you how that works out here because jesus was the savior of the world not just the jews john shows here that the romans play a, a, a larger role in the final hours of christ's life that's because jesus is the savior of the world there are three reasons for this emphasis the first reason is that john pressed the fact 
that it was always God's intention to save the world. Even though he, in a sense, in the old, under old covenant days, seemed to forsake the nations and leave them to themselves, it was always his intention to raise up a people who would then be the light to those people and by which then, or the means by which God then would call even those people unto himself. And we read that over and over and over again in the Old Testament, that he's a light to the Gentiles. Secondly, the Jews' refusal to hear the word of God is, is the problem here that resulted in their being judged. What is the main issue in, in, in all of the Old Testament scriptures? God spoke to them again and again and again and again, and they always refused to hear it. And trust him. See, the, the idea here is trust. They never walked by faith. You, you see them led out of the land of, of Egypt through the wilderness. Why did God take them through the wilderness? So that they would suffer some hardships. And in those hardships, they would turn to the Lord and would trust him in them that he would supply their needs in it. And he did. Sent them manna from heaven. Opened up the rock for water to come out. But what did they do? At every turn, when they had another difficulty, they griped and complained and wanted to go back to Egypt and accused Moses and God of deliberately seeking to destroy them. That's the problem. And then in the third... God's design was that Jesus would die on a Roman cross. It wouldn't be the Jews that would kill him. It would be the heathen, the wicked Gentiles, putting him on a Roman cross and not by Jewish stoning. So first of all, God's, God always intended that Jesus should be the Savior of the world. John the Baptist introduced Jesus in that way. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Chapter 1, verse 29. To Nicodemus in chapter 3, Jesus said, did not, uh, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world at that point, but in order that the world through Him might be saved. Then in the fourth chapter, when Jesus was going up to Galilee through Samaria, he came to Sychar in the Jacob's well, there Shechem in Samaria, of Samaria, and uh, to those, and uh, there were those then who believed on him there, kind of half Jew, half Gentile. And these said in chapter 4, verse 42, we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So then we come to John chapter 12 into the hour when Jesus is ready to go to the cross. 
and there he he came uh, some Gentiles came to him they were God fearers worshipers among the Gentiles who came to Jerusalem to observe the feast of the Passover and when they came they came to uh, Jesus' disciples and said we would like to see Jesus short, one, short verse I love that verse sirs we would see Jesus and when they said this, Jesus acknowledged that his hour had indeed come. This is no coincidence here that uh, right before then, after Caiaphas had given his prophecy that one should die for the nation, and not only for the nation, but for uh, all those who would put their faith and trust in him, uh, the 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 Gentiles frustrated about the great, I mean, excuse me, the Pharisees frustrated about the great crowds that were going after him said in chapter 12, verse 19, look, the whole world has gone after him. The whole world has gone after him. And, and that in, immediately after that is where John records the incident of these Gentiles wanting to see Jesus. So second of all, then the nation of Israel turned a deaf ear to God long before Jesus came into the world. I really truly believe the only reason that God allowed Judah to come back from the captivity of, the Babylon, of Babylon was that Jesus needed to come into the world. He didn't bring them back because there was some relative goodness in them that was better than that of the northern kingdom that was gone forever. It was that Jesus had to come from, from that house of David. So we read there in Ezekiel chapter 3 verse 27 the prophet said he who he, uh, he who will hear, let him hear, and he will, who will refuse to hear, let him refuse. Then he said, for they are a rebellious house. Interesting how many times God condemned the people of Israel for their failure to listen. That is, to hear his truth, to trust his truth, and to obediently walk by that truth. And it did not change when Jesus came. He understood that his hour had come, and when this, the, this, these Passover Gentile worshipers, as we as already mentioned here, requested to see him. And it was at this point, see, this here, this is very, to me, is very interesting in the flow of the, of the, uh, event here that it when he heard that these wanted to see him he said he turned and he prayed father glorify your son and at that point the father audibly spoke out of heaven think about that and said this is my beloved son hear him with whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus turned to the crowd who were questioning, what, who, what was that? Oh, 
That was, it just thundered, some said. Talk about unbelief. <laughs> Others said, an angel spoke to him. That's the religious crowd. The atheist said, I was just thunder. There's no God. And the religious crowd said, ah, oh, that was an angel that spoke to him. We don't we really worship God. We worship our religion and, we, and all the trappings of our religion, which contains angels and etc. So Jesus rebukes them and he said, this voice came for your sake, not mine. Wow. And then he said, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all, that is all his own, from every tribe, language, people, and nation to myself. Chapter 12, verses 30 to 32. So when the unbelieving Jews reacted to his focus on the Gentiles, Let's see, they, they reacted to that. And so read, now read verse 47 and read it in the, in the context here that they're re resisting Jesus in this matter. When he said, I will draw all to myself, they, res they resisted. So Jesus responded to them by saying, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world at this hour. See, But he will come back when he's on the second time to judge. So if the Jews believed that they alone composed the kingdom of God, that Messiah would be established and uh, that would establish that kingdom and it would be exclusively theirs, and they would rule in superiority over the Gentile world. But Jesus corrected them by this statement. The kingdom of God was composed of anyone, Jew or Gentile, who heard his words, his rhema, his teaching, and kept them by faith. That one would have eternal life. John chapter 5, verse 24 is, a, again, a restatement of that. So this incident, then Jesus, in this incident, Jesus explained that their unbelief as demonstrated in their not keeping his words. Notice, this was their problem all along. They wouldn't hear his words. They wouldn't keep them. So Jesus explains their unbelief by, as demonstrated by their not keeping his words that they were that they were about to demand that the Romans crucify their Messiah. Imagine that. The very one they were expecting and looking for and questioning all during his time. Is that this the Messiah? Truly, is he must be the Christ. Now they're ready to turn him over to the Romans to crucify him because they're deaf ears. They will not listen to the word of God. And yet, in his mercy, Jesus also informed them that he wouldn't judge them then. Isn't that amazing? I'm not going to judge you now. However, in their rejection of him, 
He would save the world, both Jew and Gentiles, all who truly would become part of his kingdom. Nevertheless, Jesus also warned them. See, here's the problem. In verse number 48, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words, his rhema, his teaching, has a judge. What? The word. Logos. And Jesus is the personal Logos. Jesus is the personal Logos. This is the written Logos. So the one who does not receive my teaching, Torah, has a judge. What is who? The Logos. The Logos that I have spoken will judge him when? On the last day. Verse 48. Jesus was referring by this to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 18 and 19. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Pope Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen, listen, whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. See, that prophet was Jesus Christ. So the question is, are we listening? Are we listening to his teaching? Thirdly, then the Jews needed the Romans to cooperate in their effort to kill Jesus in order to be rid of him. Here again, it's in the plan of God because God willed it so. We read there in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you Jews crucified and killed, not personally, but by the hands of of lawless men, the Romans. The Romans. It was against Roman law for Jews to execute anyone. So to be rid to rid themselves of Jesus, they appealed to the judicial system of the Roman uh, dominators. But the question here's the question: What would they charge Jesus with to get the Romans to cooperate? What charge would they accept? I mean, it would do no good to argue that Jesus should be put to death because his teachings and his actions did not comply with their religious standards. We don't like what he says. What? We're, we're kind of at that point today in the world. They hate us because of what we say. We'll have the FBI come and knock your door down because you said something wrong on Facebook. But we'll ignore all of the crimes that are committed. Ah, it, it is crazy. Craziness. So, yeah, yeah, the Romans would have just laughed them off if they'd have brought those kinds of accusations. So what did they charge him with? The truth! He calls himself a king! He says he's the king of the Jews. Was he the king of the Jews? Yeah. 
Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He said, you said so. <laughs> I am. Yep. And then Jesus asked Pilate, he said, did you say this of your own accord or did the others say this to you about me? In other words, did you get the truth about this thing? Do you know the facts? To which Pilate retorted, your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Pilate was at least a decent judge and he acknowledged the fact that Jesus was innocent. He was guilty of no crime. Although he was no political threat to the Romans, the Jews hoped that they would include Jesus in their insurrection. Uh, by, you know, among the other insurrectionists that had been tried by the Romans, in fact, Jesus had one in his own discipleship. Judas Iscariot. I mean, I mean, uh, um, my mind just went blank. Um, um, the zealot, Simon the Zealot. Yeah, there, there we go. Simon the Zealot. So here, here again, we have an interesting thing. Pilate said, well, you know, it's a custom that I should release to you, one, one to you uh, on this religious holiday, Passover. So would you like me to release to you Jesus? And they said, no, Barabbas. Isn't that interesting? Barabbas means son of the father. Jesus was the son of the father. <laughs> here's, a, here's a real criminal who has that name, son of the father, and what was his charge? What was Barabbas guilty of? Insurrection. Resisting the Romans. But not just by his words. He was a murderer. So Jesus, however, was really not a threat to their peace. The sin of the Jews in plotting against and betraying their king then was expected at the beginning. So John declares there in his prologue, he came to his own creation and his own people, Israel, did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, to them gave he the power to become sons of God. Wow. This rejection of Jesus was predicted in the parable of the ten minus. Jesus there taught in, in Luke 19, 11 to 27, but I'm just going to read one section here. It says, His citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. He's telling them what they're, going to, what they're thinking. Then we have the parable of the Wicked tenants in, in this 20th chapter of Luke, verses 9 through 18, in which the king sent his only son to, the, to those who were running the vineyard, and they rejected and killed him. Clearly a reference to the, the uh, rejection and killing of the Son of God. And, then Je and it's interesting that Jesus closed that parable there in, in Luke 20 by citing... Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Hallelujah. 
To which then he added Isaiah chapter 8 verse 15. Everyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Hmm. And then he applied it by informing the Jews. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. That's us, the church. And when Jesus stated that the wicked tenants would be destroyed, there in the same parable, Luke chapter 20, verse 16, the Jewish leaders responded, Surely not. Surely not. So then this rejection was returned on their own heads in divine retribution. Earlier in Matthew, Jesus healed a Gentile centurion servant. Nothing in Scripture is incidental, accidental, or coincidental. <laughs> it's all purpose. Jesus heals this centurion servant's son and in responding to his faith said, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. That didn't make him happy. And then he continued, there in verses 11 and 12, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, that's Israel, the Jewish nation, will be thrown into outer darkness. They want to subject Jesus to a period of darkness, putting him on the cross, but the reward for that is that they will have eternal darkness in which to dwell. Oh, this is nothing to trifle with. This is nothing to trifle with. Jesus is the only Savior of men. And so, we read, said, see, uh, they're in... Uh, Matthew chapter 23, when he laments there over Jerusalem, predicting that it will be destroyed, which it did, which it was there in 70 AD. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. See, prophets. Those who speak the word of God. We're not listening. And we'll kill the, those who bring God's word to us. He said, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under his wings, but you were not willing. Why were they not willing? Because they were not listening either. So he said, then see, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Wow. Then he predicted the judgment that would come to Jerusalem because of this rejection. In chapter 24, verse 2, he says, See, all these things, this temple complex, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So let me 
move then to the removal of the king. We saw the rejection of the king and why he was rejected. Now I want you to see the removal of the king. And first of all, notice here the significance of the first verse of chapter 18. And this is where Jesus consecrates himself for the sake of his own. His going into the garden and praying was, was for the purpose of consecrating himself to this task he was facing. So now he's consecrating himself for the sake of his own so that they would be sanctified in the truth there as he stated in chapter 17 verse 19. For their sake, he says, I consecrate consecrate myself. That's, that is a formal a religious term that has to do with the, Jew, with the Jewish faith. Committing oneself to the Lord. And he said, I'm going to do that so that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Now, although he knew what would take place, as shown in verse 4, says, knowing all things that would happen to him, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron. Ah, that is a, that's an interesting statement. And what is, he, what is he doing here? He's deliberately walking into their trap. But not before he first of all goes there to pray, which John, of course, does not uh, deal with. But the Kidron Valley, which, which is actually Wadi Ennar, that's its real name, Wadi Ennar, was about 200 feet below the temple battlement. So here's the temple right here, and uh, its walls right there to be seen, right there, the temple of God. Now they're down in the valley here, and they're crossing over the Kidron, over onto the Mount, to the Mount of Olives, which is, which is just across to the east here from the temple complex. And where then they enter into this enclosure called the Garden of Gethsemane which Gethsemane means oil press. We think it was a rich Jew that owned it, and the whole Mount of Olives, it's called Mount of Olives because there's olive groves everywhere up there where they raise olives. And the olives are pressed to receive the oil. See, again, there's this incidental spiritual connection. Jesus often resorted there with his disciples, we're told. So Jesus was deliberately going there because we're told that, that Judas also knew the place. That, that garden also had a wonderful view of the Temple Mount and the Olivet Discourse. Matthew's chapters 24 and 25 were... were uh, taught right on that place now he went there for three reasons and i'm going to close up the message with this the first reason he went there was because the feast of the passion and this is this is a, a historical point that uh, doesn't have all that much spiritual relevance but it's i think it's significant the feast of passover required that all its attendees remain within a certain bounds of the city of jerusalem 
So if Jesus would have gone to Bethany, which was his normal retirement place, he would have been out of bounds, thus violating the protocol of the feast. But second of all, as noted, John records that Jesus often resorted there. In other words, he's deliberately walking into this trap because we read, now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. That's verse 2. One would think that Jesus, understanding what was about to take place, would seek out another place to avoid detection. But he refused to alter his habits in order to avoid his enemies. He did that at other times there, for example, in the 12th chapter, verse 36. They wanted to arrest him. And so when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them, we read there in verse 36. In that incident, although he did realize that his hour was upon him, and yet it was, to, it was yet to be realized. So here they're crossing the Kidron. He knew he was entering his hour. Thirdly, although John does not record Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' resolve is clearly evident. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He was resolved to fulfill his glorious mission. He is having fully understood what was to take place. We read here, Jesus came forward. Verse 4. Incidental words there, but they have such significance. No hesitation. No second thoughts. No fear. He had fully surrendered to the Father's purpose. Not as I will, but as you will. Matthew twenty six thirty nine. And he said to Peter, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Here in verse 11 of this chapter. So Jesus' composure and deliberate control of the situation argues his resolve to fulfill his glorious mission. We need to have that same attitude. We don't know what's before us. We don't know what trials we face. We can, we can be discouraged with our present circumstances. And we can think tomorrow, what's the use? No, no, no. We're on a mission. Jesus won the battle. Now it needs to play out to the victory. To the final resolution of the victory. And we need to be composed and deliberate in our control of our own situation as we trust the Lord. And we need the resolve to fulfill this glorious mission which He has laid upon our shoulders as well. We read this in Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, verses 10 to, 10 to 12, we read, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When, he, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he, now, now here's the, the blessing, he shall see his offspring. That's resurrection. 
He shall prolong his days. That's resurrection. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That's the salvation of a multitude. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Yeah. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Wow. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide with him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Victor! Yeah, he went in there knowing that what that the hour he suffered, and he called it the hour, would result in a glorious victory for eternity. So this te text reveals to us both the dark place and the glorious day that follows. Now let me ap apply it here quickly for you. First of all, he, we need to learn how to live like Jesus lived, as Jesus lived. Hebrews addresses this. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Let us run with endurance. I watch cross-country kids. It's, a, it's interesting to watch them. Or long-distance runners even at track meets. Verse 2 or 3, laps there going like crazy. Then all of a sudden you can see them start breaking apart. And some of these kids, they struggle. <laughs> you can just see them struggling. They just can't. It's hard to put one foot in front of the next. But they're not done. They've got two or three more laps to go. I feel sorry for them. Wish you could run down there and pick them up and carry them for a little while. Let them rest up. But no, they have to endure. They got to keep on keeping on. Even though they're dropping back 17, 18, 20th place. So let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus. That's how we endure. The founder and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him. Was it joy? <laughs> yes, because he would see the result. Of his suffering. Despise, he despised the shame of it. And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So consider him. That is dwell on him with thoughtful consideration. Who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. that So that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. We walk by faith and not by sight. Let's make it our aim to please Him. Oops. Second of all, even though all the world appears to be collapsing into chaos, we must take heart and trust that Jesus is ruling and reigning now. His enemies are being subdued. The Scripture truth is here in Colossians 2.15. He has already disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them. And he will deliver the kingdom to his father at the end of the age, only after destroying every rule and authority and power, according to 1 Corinthians 17, 15, 27. 
And thus, we are admonished to consider that the suffering of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. We wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For what? For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Romans 8, 18-25 Finally, through 3, we must be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints because He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his, of his beloved Son. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. That's Colossians 1, 11 to 13 and verse 23. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. He crossed the Kidron from Jerusalem in the very shadow of the temple, that building that was a type and foreshadowing of Him, the true temple, to go to the cross, to suffer and bleed and die for His people. Lord, I pray that You will teach us that no matter how dark seems our hour, the glorious light is just about to dawn. We are already victors. We have already triumphed in Jesus. It just needs to be seen into the reality. We, our faith needs to be turned to sight. We walk by faith. Keep us strong and enduring with our eyes fixed upon the Savior and considering what He did and how He did it, that we may do the same. And we'll praise You and thank You for it in Jesus' name. Amen.